Good morning. That doesn't sound like it's going to be loud enough. You're going to need to do something with that volume so that I can hear me speak. Thank you. Thank you. A little louder, a little louder. Um, I, what did not get announced this morning, uh, and thank you for so many of you who are cared for the Galemi family, is Tony Galemi had passed away last Saturday, and uh, I know many of you connected with the family and just offered care and support and friendship to them during that time, so thank you for doing that, but just would want you to be aware of that as well. <clears throat> Let me say this before I, I get into the word this morning, and I, and I want this to, to spook you a little bit, right, because this is a gathering like no other gathering that you do. It's not like a gathering, you know, we've got a parking lot, we've got a building, we've got seats. All right, that's, that's not unusual. There's basketball games, football games, movie theaters, et cetera, et cetera. But when you gather here, there is this uncontrollable, unexpected, unseen element that gathers in the room with us. Right, I mean, I could make it sound weird. I could say, now, in just a few moments, we're going we're gonna to release nerve gas through the air conditioning. Now, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it, but you're going to be breathing it in, and it's, it's going to have an effect on you. I just want you to be aware of that. And, okay, maybe that freak you out. If you're a visitor right now, you're wondering, why, why did I come this morning? Uh, but when you gather as the people of God, invisibly, yet to become visible, God gathers with us. And so in a strange way, all that we've done here today, God enjoins himself to it uniquely. Uniquely different. We're going to open the word now. It's, it's going to be uniquely different than when, than when you're just by yourself opening the word. Because God is going to accompany it in a certain way. At the end of the service, we're going to, we're going to celebrate communion today. And much of what we're going to preach on is going to prepare us for that. But, but, you know, God enjoins himself to that celebration uniquely. And so he is going to impart things, stuff that was not on your radar to experience or to even think about this morning is about to get on your list. Things that haven't been bothering you are about to start bothering you. What, you know, where's all that going to come from? Well, this, is, this isn't Walmart. This is the church. This is the church where God uniquely dwells with his people. So be prepared for, for the invisible God to mess with your world. And we want him to do that, right? We want to be able to appreciate that this is a unique gathering when we're together. And I love, I mean, I spent a great bit of time yesterday, last night, just praying and being with God and calling out to God, but fully recognizing in that moment that that moment would be different than this moment. That when we gather together, the gathering, the church is a gathering. The nature of that word is to gather. So God is into gathering us together. And when he gets us together, he does some stuff uniquely that he doesn't do alone. So be informed that it, it may not come through the air conditioning, but it's coming. And you may not see it, but it's going to produce an effect on you. And that's how we should be thinking when we come here. All right, let me give you a thought here as you turn to Malachi chapter 2, last book of the Old Testament, I believe uniquely desired by God to communicate some things to us helpful in this season of our lives. How many of you guys are familiar with the medical term sciatica? Let me see your hands. Wow, way too many, <laughs> way too many, All right? How many of you guys 
you've, you've kind of heard, but you don't really know what that is. Sciatica, you don't know what that is. <clears throat> God bless you. <laughs> uh, most of the young hands went up. Uh, sciatica. Well, it's in my, it's in my uh, title this morning, so I better define it. Here's what sciatica is. It's sciatic neuritis. Right? It is a set of symptoms, including pain, that may be caused by general compression or irritation of, of one of five spinal nerve roots that give rise to each sciatic nerve. The pain is felt, listen, this is important. The pain is felt in the lower back, the buttock, or various parts of the leg in the foot. In addition to pain, which is sometimes severe, there may be numbness, muscular weakness, pins and needles or tingling, and difficulty in moving or controlling the leg. All right, how many of y'all can say amen right now? Okay. (laughs) See, we haven't even even opened the Bible yet, and you're amen already. Uh, Although sciatica is a relatively common form of low back pain and leg pain, the true meaning of the term is often misunderstood. Sciatica is, listen, a set of symptoms rather than a diagnosis for what is irritating the root of the nerve causing the pain, all right? So it's a set of symptoms. It's not necessarily the cause of the pain, right? So I have, you know, you guys are probably getting sick of me just enumerating on the latest physical breakdown going on in this body, now, just remember, for all the years of me preaching, I didn't have much to talk about. This stuff wasn't breaking, but man, the last few years, it's like the warranty must have gone out or something. <laughs> all right, so here's my latest. I'm noticing that I have this strange numbness right in my elbow, this strange, every once in a while, it's kind of tingling kind of a thing. It's, it's, some, it's dull pain. It's not sharp shooting pains, but it's, it's dull pains, and so, you know, I'm I'm looking for some sympathy. I'm trying to get my wife involved in a little assistance here. And, you know, but, but how can she help? You know, how can she help what's going on in the elbow here? But I notice certain things that when I move a certain way, I notice that it's not just the elbow. It, it's more in the back. So I'm having, her, I'm having her rub. You know, I'm going out and buying mechanical power tools uh, for, because, you know, I want her to be able to drill a hole in my back because this thing is bugging me. So, you know, it's like a pile driver thing. <laughs> my kids broke it. But anyway, um, <laughs> she's using this thing on my back, and sure enough, it's affecting what I'm feeling here, right? So you get these extremities things going on. But when you go to fix the extremities thing, you find out that's, that's not where the problem is. Problem somewhere else. If you want to touch this, you're going to have to touch this thing over here. All right, that's what sciatica is. Well, these guys here that we're going to look at today are experiencing spiritual sciatica in Malachi. They've got some pains in the extremities, but if you're going to go fix it, it's not going to be the extremities where you start to fix this thing. You're going to have to go find where the nerve is being compressed and affected so that their lives have the symptoms that are described here. So let's let's read together here, Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts with favor from your hand. But you say, why does does he not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Lord, As we press further into this book, where we yet again come in contact with a word that is correcting us. It is is bringing adjustment to a people who were wayward in their lives. And and Lord, this this might be a challenge to sustain. We're just like, we're like three weeks into another aspect of correction. But yet, Lord, these folks were years and years and years into misplaced affections and deprioritized lives and practices that were grievous to you. Lord, certainly one moment of correction would not be sufficient. Lord, certainly you took time with these folks to turn their hearts to you once again. And Lord, I pray you would do that for us. Lord, that we would not be a people who can only tolerate you addressing us in certain categories for a very limited amount of time. Lord, feel free this morning through your inspired word to open our lives to you where they are right now, that you may be pleased with who we are as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of problems get highlighted in this passage, and the first one is most clear because it's mentioned at least three times right in front of us, and it's a people that are characterized by the word faithlessness. Now, some of that, that word gets translated a little bit differently here. You'll see why. I'm not sure why your outline has a numeric formula in it. This is not a chemical equation for the word faithless. It just means whatever the guys use to use that doesn't grab Hebrew words well. So I guess that's the Hebrew formula for the word begad, but didn't realize that. Faithless, it means this. It's a verb meaning to deal treacherously with, to be traitorous, to act unfaithfully, to betray. The verb connotes unfaithfulness, listen, in relationships like marriage, Israel's covenant with the Lord, friendships, and leadership. The word is also used of breaching man-made treaties, and the social responsibilities expected in normal human relationships. Now, I want to clarify both of those because there's an aspect here where covenant keeping is being forsaken. 
It's highlighted in the marriage context in particular. It's also going to be highlighted in the covenant God makes with his people. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. But there's also a realm in which this word of faithlessness gets connected to relationships that have expectations that are formed by God, that don't necessarily have paperwork. You know, I don't have a paperwork covenant between me and my kids, but there is an expectation the Bible ascribes to that relationship. I do have a paper con- covenant relationship with my wife that's spelled out. But within structures of of how we relate to one another, there's certain commitments that we have to one another, right? I mean, there's a bunch of guys here who just finished going through the church membership class. Uh, We we read through the church covenant together as we meet over seven weeks and talk through what is it to be a member of the body of Christ. There are certain commitments you're making with your life. Now, we've actually put those into a document and asked people to sign it to make sure that, that have you really looked at what the Bible says about being a member of the body of Christ? But there, there are unspoken commitments that we have with each other that are here in Scripture. And so this word applies to that, and yet these are people who are faithless. They're not honoring those commitments. They're betraying them. They're actually treacherous in the way in which they relate to one another. John Piper brings this thought to Malachi here. He says, so what Malachi does with this key word is to show that community life is supposed to be ordered by the faithful fulfillment of promises and contracts and oaths and covenants and commitments. All relationships are made peaceful and pure by the fulfillment of covenants and promises and oaths and contracts and commitments. Children to parents, parents to children, husbands to wives, and wives to husbands, employer to employee, and employee to employer, citizen to state, and state to citizen. The peace and prosperity and joy, the shalom, the Old Testament word there, of the community is held together by the deep, strong spirit of covenant keeping that pervades the community. The very fabric of the community is the trustworthiness of its people. Do they keep their commitments? Or when things get hard, when things get unpleasant, when things get difficult and challenging, when things in relationships get unrewarding and you begin to feel unfulfilled when things get boring. How many of you know that we don't do boring well? Especially if you're a young person. If you're a young person, you don't do boring well. Boring, I'm serious, boring becomes a reason to break all ties. I mean, just just break all ties with one another because I'm bored. I'm familiar. You've done all your tricks for me, you know? We got to know each other all all these years, and and you did tricks, and it was cool, and I didn't know that, and that was funny, but now I have figured you out, (laughs) and you're predictable and same, and last week's just like this week. I I want something new. This, This is the reality of relationships in these people's lives. It's breeding faithlessness. It's it's not. It's not friendship through thick and thin, right? Remember that that used to be the fabric of friendships was through thick and thin. We were friends through it all. It's not for better 
or for worse in marriages either. It's for better, but it's not necessarily for worse. Right? So this is, the, this is the nature of what's happening in relationships. And it's not just one aspect, and we'll see in a second, of faithlessness. It's sort of a, a general stink. It's an aroma. It's an attitude of faithlessness. It's beginning to seep its way into the way in which they do life. Piper goes on and says, the other way for people to try to live together in community is the opposite of covenantal order. It's what you might call the disorder of self-indulgence. In this community, the spirit of commitment-making and commitment-keeping has been replaced by a spirit of emotional and physical impulse. The moral fabric of faithfulness to covenants and promises and contracts is unraveled, and what's left are the individual strands of private gratification. It's that tendency as a people. They had it. But listen, remember, they are a people, right? They are identified collectively as a people. This is, this is not Malachi addressing scattered humanity. This is Malachi speaking to a collected, gathering, defined group of people who were known by their relationship with God. There was borders to Israel. They were somebody together, right? Well, there's borders to us. We have some similar dynamics, We're not just a bunch of strangers who happen to all pull up this morning, you know, get gas at the Shell station. Sometimes I get gas at Sitco. You know, there's no faithfulness there. I'm just getting gas. You know, I'm in church, but sometimes I'm at this church and sometimes I'm at that church. Hey, if if, if that's the way you are, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You are to be collected together with people in a way that reflects biblical values and priorities. You're just not a customer showing up today trying to sample the food in this building. We are together, and in that, we can be like them. There can be an air of faithlessness that has spread in our relationships. And it won't just be, although it has been, and I've said this numerous times, it won't just be in the category of marriage, although it has been in this culture in the category of marriage. There is a faithlessness. It is common. It is pervasive. It is infectious. It is taking the edge off of your commitment to your spouse right now. And if you're in the church and you think the world doesn't have that kind of effect upon you, we need to to talk after church. It does have that effect on you. You can be the most spiritual person in this building this morning. And the world that you live in is affecting you. So the commonness of faithlessness in marriage is affecting your marriage. And it will affect many, many marriages. But it's not just affecting marriages. It's it's affecting how churches walk together. It's affecting friendships. I've I've had to kind of inject a new word into friendships. Because, you know, friendships, maybe that's always been this way. But I've just noticed in the last 10, 15 years sort of this growing disloyalty amongst friends. Almost as though it gives away this little thing that, that, that Piper says here. This, these individual strands of private gratification. Sort of like, I'm your friend, I'm in your life, as long as it's feeling good coming this way. I'm, I'm a part of friendship and I'm reaching out to you and I'm all smiles and I'm committed But, you know, if personal gratification picks up and moves from this address with you to this setting over here with these folks, well, then I'm going to be done with you. I see that all over the place. 
So this faithlessness permeates relationships. Right? It was permeating these guys in Malachi's day. Right? Uh, there were faithless priests who had failed in their leadership. We visited those in, Act, in Malachi chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, these who, who should have been faithful to their calling had become faithless in their role. And I say this again without collecting everybody who's 15 years or older in the body of Christ into this middle section. I say this that if you're a Christian and you've been one for very long, you bear a responsibility to others in the body of Christ. There was a faithlessness for these priests. They, they got around to people, and for whatever reason in their own lives, they stopped prioritizing the ways in which offerings were to be done to be approaching God. Was it because of personal corruption? Was it because of some shortcut mentality? Was it because they had just lost affection for God and it became easy for them to sort of lower the standard? Was it because of pressure from the people? Was it because they came to believe it was just too much to expect that somebody, somebody's going to bring their best sheep to offer? I mean, you know, you're expecting an awful lot if you think people are going to do that. I mean, that, that's a financial issue. And come on, I mean, pragmatically, they've got some other lame sheep limping along. The things are going to die anyway. Is it really a problem for those to be coming given in a sacrifice to God? And so somehow the priests and leaders accommodate that mentality and are faithless to the role of influence they were to have in the people of God. Listen, if you're mature, if you've been saved for a while, you have a responsibility to be faithful to the influence you have in the body of Christ. It should not be an acceptable thing for you to have been, you know, I got saved and went through a couple of two, three years of radical change and got off the drugs and really changed and did this and then a few years of change here and then at 10 years I was this way, then 12 years I was kind of the same and 15 years I was kind of the same and, and then 14 years I just kind of settled down and then 20 years, I, you know, it's okay and, and I'm not influential and I'm not having an effect and I'm not living life in a way that commands people to look toward God in an amazing way and be blown away by God and his greatness. I'm just kind of this silent presence in the people of God. That's a form of faithlessness. That's abandoning the role of influence. I said this a few weeks ago. Please, can we not be this? Can we not be this? Can we not be covenant groups that need to get rescued by somebody who recently got saved, finally showing up to the meeting and making it interesting? You know what I'm talking about? You know, because we're just these, we're just kind of these bored Christians we're not, we don't live edgy lives. We're not risking anything. We're not sticking our necks out. We're not taking chances. We just kind of have tamed our lives down to slow and predictable. And then here comes this new Christian, shows up, just got saved. They can't shut up. They're all lit up and excited about life and about going on with God, and they've learned this, and they open the Bible. Hey, they actually read the Bible. Can you imagine? And they get in the midst of us, and it's kind of like, who, who, an ember, to help me kind of get some warmth. Wait, 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 wait. They should be coming in like the coal needing to be lit and the 15 and 20 year old ought to be on fire for the glory of God. It shouldn't be backwards like that. We shouldn't be applauding that. It represents faithlessness on the part of those who should know better. We should be knowing God better. The priest should have been knowing God better. Faithless spouses, right? In this setting, as we'll see a little bit of today, 
these guys were abandoning the wife of their youth, which is an interesting phrase, and they were divorcing them and marrying the women in the land right, for a number of reasons, probably. But you know what's interesting here? Because this really flies in the face of, of American idealism. In America, the storyline is, you know, we, we meet a person, we fall in love, we get married, and then somewhere down the road, a lot of that stuff's going to simmer down, right? This enamored, fell in love, head over heels, out of my mind, that's going to simmer down. And it's going to get replaced by, you're a normal human being, I'm a normal human being. I'm not impressed. You impressed? I'm not impressed either. Uh, you're, a, you're more normal than I thought, by the way. And, and now I'm disagreeing over the level of normalness and great severe disappointment. And I wonder if I, maybe I made a mistake. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I missed God. I mean, hey, wait, 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 I'm having a humble moment here. I'm admitting that I might have missed God. I mean, hey, I mean, I should get out of this thing because I don't, I think I was disobeying God when I, you know, now that I reflect on it, it's all becoming clear. I think I was disobeying God. All right, well, when God turns around to these people and calls them back in faithfulness to the wife of your youth, he is predominantly referring to arranged marriages. Not, I met you, I fell in love, we were ooh, I knew it was God, and then I changed my mind later. No, this was, hi, uh, your dad and me have gotten together, and you and you are going to get married. I know you're just little kids right now, but in a few years you're going to grow up, and you're going to marry this one, and you're going to stay married. For the rest of your lives. Well, what if, what if I don't like their style? What if they talk too much? What if they uh, don't think of me and care for me the way that I want to be thought of and cared for? What if there's just no ooey-gooey? You know, that's not how marriages were done here. Your marriage was arranged. It was a wise decision that was made by parents to put you together. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it ought to happen. But I'm finding it interesting that in that moment, God turns around and calls them to be faithful to that relationship. God doesn't turn around and say, oh, well, you know what? No question here. Not only did you make a mistake in getting married, you didn't even have a say. So certainly you should be able to get out of this bad deal that some other knucklehead made in your stead. Does God say that? No, he turns around to these arranged marriages and calls them to faithfulness to one another. Sometimes it's helpful not to read the Bible like an American, right? Impose our American culture on what's happening here. That's well, well, faithlessness. But here's where I want to make sure we, we see this. This is a collected people. This is a people that God is speaking to. They are the descendants of Jacob as he started off. They are related to a covenant that exists. So they, they have become a faithless people as the people of God. In that sense, a faithless people, right? What was this in verse 10? What was this profaning of the covenant of our fathers? What, what is the profaning of the covenant of our fathers? Well, the word profane means to violate, to treat as common, to set aside. You guys have set aside the covenant of our fathers. Well, what was that? 
What was the covenant of our fathers? And why does God bring it up right here? And why does it matter in this context of how they're treating each other? Well, they're setting it aside. What, what, what is it? Well, it's the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the covenant where God decided that the whole world was wayward, fallen, facing future judgment, and by his mercy, he stepped in and said, you know what, I'm going to make sure I proclaim myself in mercy to this rebellious group of people who none of them will ever turn to me in repentance. So I'm going to step into a man named Abraham's life, and I'm going I'm to blow this guy's mind, and I'm going to make him my own. He's, he doesn't even... He doesn't even care if I exist at this point. He doesn't even know. I, he's, a, he's a moon worshiper right now. But I'm going to step into his world, and I'm going to bring him to myself, and I'm going to reveal myself to him, and in mercy, I'm going to make an agreement with him. And I'm going to promise certain promises in a covenant to Abraham. And then I'm going to transfer that to Isaac, and then I'm going to transfer it again to Jacob. And in chapter 1, God's going to bring that covenant up, Right? I have loved you. Oh, remember chapter 1? Oh, really? How have you loved us? Well, do you notice the difference between how I'm treating you as a descendant of Jacob versus how I'm treating Esau and the Edomites? Because I have a covenant with Jacob that I made out of mercy into his life that I don't have with the descendants of Esau. And so you do see that I, I treat you differently than I treat them. That's, that's God's case for his love. That's the covenant that's been set aside. That's the purpose of God, that God would have a people on the earth amongst all the people that would uniquely be his, that he would define, this is uniquely my people. They are uniquely called by my name. I'm going to set a sanctuary in their midst. That's that word sanctuary. And I'm going to dwell uniquely in the midst of them. That's my purpose so that through every generation from now until the end of time, I have a proclamation of who I am into the earth so that the nations might come to be and be my inheritance. That's God's purpose. When you hear that term in, in Romans, God's purpose in election, that's God's purpose in election. Right? Sometimes we, we kind of miss this. You're going to find out this is part of the sciatic nerve issue these guys are having. They have misplaced this. They've lost sight of this reality. And you and I lose sight of it when we quote one of our, ma- our, our favorite verses in Romans chapter 8. For we know this, that God causes all things. Everybody knows the rest of it, right? Right, God causes all things to work together for the good. Now, right, don't be like a person who's never read the Bible and stop quoting it right there. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What purpose is that? It's the purpose revealed in Abraham. It's the covenant of our fathers. It's the purpose of God to always have a people that were his who would proclaim the excellencies of him. It's what you and I live in in the New Testament when Peter turns to us and said as we studied through 1 Peter, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Where did all that language come from? The covenant with the fathers. To show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his light. Once you were not a people, 
Once you were just like every other clueless individual in the world walking through life trying to figure out, what am I going to be when I grow up? I want to be a race car driver. I want to be a fireman. I want to be an athlete. I want to own a business. Everybody else just trying to wander through, who am I going to be? What's going to define me? What will make my life great and significant? God says, once you were just one of those airheads. And I came along and I told you why you exist. You exist to be my people, to proclaim my glory through your lives, to show forth the excellencies of me. I'm calling you out of darkness into my light. That's why you exist. That's why they existed. That was God's purpose for the people. And that time, it's God's purpose for us right now. Do you understand how this has a bearing on how we treat one another? Because everything about our life is about a purpose in God. Everything about our life is not just about whether or not this helps me get to the next career spot. Whether or not this puts me in the right group. Whether or not I get to be in that group of friends and make that kind of money and have that kind of experience and go on that sort of vacation, own that kind of deal. That's, that's a people who once were not a people think that way. But a people who have become the people of God, they think about my whole life is about declaring the glory of God. So that has everything to do with how I relate to others. Well, these people were faithless. Putting your outline there. Faithless people are uncommitted and uncompelled people. Faithless people are uncommitted and uncompelled people. They lack convictions that define what they're going to do. They become unpredictable because there's not something in them that, that gets at them, that makes them in moments, easy moments and difficult moments, makes them do things that you can predict based on who God is. They become unpredictable. They're kind of, everything's unbolted in their life and they become prey to whatever forces blow on them. So in, in these guys' lives, greed blew on their lives. There's a, this book is about greed in a huge way. We haven't even gotten to chapter 3 that's about offerings. Part of the reason why some of these guys were marrying foreign women was about greed. It wasn't just about lust, although that probably was the case for many as well. It was about greed. It, it was about, well, let me, let me put greed into a much more tolerable. It was about economics. Right? Yeah, I know. It's a better word. Economics. Not greed. It's, it's economics. Keith, it was about necessity. It was about survival, right? Remember who these people are? They've been away in exile, and they come back to a land that's been decimated, neglected, burned. So they've got this coming out of World War II feeling that everything is destroyed and bombed out, and we've got to rebuild it all. And we're these people in the land. We've got no alliances with anybody. We've got nations around us that at any point could overthrow us. You know, it just makes sense that we'd marry some of their daughters, you understand. You know, even though those daughters are, are idol worshipers and they're going to bring down the spiritual content of our existence. But, it, but if we marry them, we're going to create commerce because their nation will want to do business with our nation. It's just, it, Keith, it just makes good economic sense. And, you know, if you just kind of lower God to a real familiar level, things that make sense, just, they're just easy to do. It just makes sense. Don't do anything radical. Don't do something crazy here. It just makes sense. And so the greed, they're, they're marrying because of the force of greed. And they've got no conviction, so they're blown away by that. Laziness. I mean, these guys were lazy. <laughs> Laziness is a big, huge issue all the time for everybody. 
chapter 1, God is basically saying, remember this? Oh, I wish that one of you guys would, would just shut the door on this thing. Just, just shut it down. And he goes on just after that and he says, because, because I've given you these instructions and you are wearied by them. You are wearied by what I'm asking you to do to relate to me. Bring sacrifices. Bring your A game. Sacrifice your most treasured stuff. Give me your prime time and attention. That's just wearying. You know, I mean, we got a lot going on, right? I mean, that's just a lot to live in life right now. God, you got to understand. So laziness pushed them and moved them from where they were. Uncompelling examples did that. Right, you got neighbor offering lame animal. You got priest accepting lame animal. You got some pretty poor examples going on here. Right, all that stuff had become normal. And so you start making a decision about whether you're going to take that prized possession and offer it to God, whether you're going to honor God by going above and beyond what everybody else is doing, but it feels weird now, you know? Right, you, ever, you ever get around the people of God and it feels weird to be spiritual? You know, it feels weird to bring stuff up? You know, you're with that group of people that if, if you got spiritual on, on them all of a sudden, they wouldn't know what to do with that. That would make you, you know, they'd be looking at you weird and, you know, because you, you got this friendship thing happening where you can talk about everything under the sun, but you can't talk about God. You can't talk about the deep things of God. And so this commonality that we just, that's just how we live. That's just how we are. That's normal, right, which is why we need a new normal thought for you here, a couple of interesting thoughts. I'm just going to extract these and not take time in them. Interesting vocabulary lesson here. Some interesting words used here. Remember, God is, God is the one giving us the vocabulary lesson here. And I think it'd be insightful for us to see how God speaks about some of the everyday events of life versus how they might have spoken about it. Right? You got words like faithless, which is translated in many translations as treacherous. You're a betrayer. You've dealt treacherously with others. That's the, that's the word God uses. He uses the word abomination. Right? We don't use that very often. It's, it's a word that means loathsome, detestable. When used with reference to God, this nuance of the word describes people, things, acts, relationships, and characteristics that are detestable to him because they're contrary to his nature. I don't know. This is why this book is helpful because it lets God be God. Let's God let you really tell you how he feels. You know, if you've created a God that looks upon human existence and he kind of goes, well, um, I think I'd prefer A over B. Yeah, that would just be, would be my preference. I've actually heard a TV preacher describe sinful behavior as not God's best. Well, that would not be God's best for you. Well, oh, okay, I see where this is going. So it needs to meet your approval, Right? It would not be God's best for you, and you don't want to settle for second best for you now, do you? That's where that theology is going. What about what glorifies God? The Bible doesn't talk about what's best for God. It talks about what glorifies God. So does that bring glory to God? How does God feel about it? Well, it's an abomination. It's treacherous behavior. You have profaned my covenant, you cheaters and robbers. This is the vocabulary lesson of God in Malachi. That's how God talks about these things. Right? The church might be very well informed 
to make sure that we feel about things the way God feels. Not in an arrogant way, because I don't, I don't have the right uh, position in God's kingdom for, for me to feel like your sin affronts me. Uh, no, no, your, your sin is like in partnership with my sin. Your disgusting detestableness is, lives right next door to mine. So I, I don't have the right to look upon you like you detestable abomination, you. No, because I got my own issues of detestable and abominating. But just because I'm uncomfortable with some of those words doesn't mean I need to strip God of them. Like God's a whole lot more okay with everything. He's not. These are his words. He said these things. A couple of quick thoughts, interesting insights on marriage from this passage. One, there in verse 10. Why then are you faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So these marriages to those who served foreign gods is an abomination and it has polluted the sanctuary of God. Well, well, God's sanctuary was God's people, right? I'm going to uniquely dwell among my people. Let them build for me a tabernacle that I might dwell among them. That's what what this tabernacle idea is. God wanted to be in the presence of the people of God and walk with them and uniquely influence and affect them. And he says, you're marrying foreign daughters has affected that. John Piper says, the primary issue here is that the person that the man of Judah was marrying did not love and trust and follow Jehovah, the true God of Israel. She was not a daughter of the true God. She was a daughter of a foreign God. Listen, be careful here. This is not about race. It's not about socioeconomic issues. This is about this person belongs to God and this person does not. Well, they got no business marrying each other. This person is in Christ. This person is in Adam. Well, from God's standpoint, he's telling these, you got no business marrying that person. That's clearly all throughout Scripture. Piper says, so the point of the verse is that when we claim to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and then willfully choose to unite ourselves with an unbeliever in the most intimate personal union on earth, We profane the holiness of God. We act as though our emotional drive for human intimacy is more important than affirming the preciousness of God's holiness and nearness. Listen, this is an emotionally charged topic for a single person who feels the emotional dissatisfaction of not being in partnership with another person. And the strength of that can begin, if your convictions aren't deep, can begin to move you into thinking, well, God would want me happy. God would want to satisfy the emotional issues of my life that are not being met by me being single. So, therefore, maybe that relationship would be okay. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> uh, the long version of wrong is here with Mr. Piper. <laughs> this is a commentary on wrong right here. 
if the choice of marriage, of a marriage partner, still lies before you, right? you are here this morning, you are not married, and that lies in front of you, one day you will make a decision. Settle in your mind right now never to marry anyone that does not love the Lord Jesus with all of his or her heart. You are not too young to do this. From the time I was 13 years old, it was one of the settled convictions, convictions of my heart. I would guard myself from the rising of all romantic affection for any girl who is not a true Christian. I'll leave that with every person here who's a single person. Think like you're a child of God. Think like what God has said. Treat these words like God meant what he said. The reason why I'm titling this series Meeting Malachi's God, because Malachi's God is our God. Malachi didn't serve a foreign God. He's not speaking on behalf of a foreign God here. He's speaking on behalf of our God, who still feels this way about these issues, and that should inform us. A couple of quick thoughts you see in this passage I won't unpack. Maybe another date we will. But second, divorce involved dealing with another person in a treacherous manner. That's the word that God used to describe. You divorce another person, you are acting treacherously toward them. Third, divorce sins against God who has uniquely participated in your covenant marriage. When you enter into this thing God created called marriage, you enter into something that God has ordained for two to become one, and that's a mystery that God is involved with. So when you decide, I no longer want to be one with this person, you, you not only are treacherously dealing with that person, you are sinning against God who mysteriously involved himself in your union. Right? That's what these passages point out. Right? Right, let me get to this next problem that gets highlighted here. Problem number two. I called it spiritual puzzlement. I guess today you might call it clueless Christians. Verse 13. Here's the... The dilemma. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, and groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. This, this, is, a, this is a boatload of trouble right here. Theologically, you, you, should be, you should be treading water trying to figure out, okay, how do I explain this verse as a New Testament Christian? Here you have God revealing that he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The context here is a people who are in, the, in covenant with God. What covenant in God, with God are they in? The covenant of our fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that when God builds a case for you are in relationship with me based on my decision with Jacob, he turns around and offers all of Romans 9 as a defense. Not that Jacob did anything good or bad for me to choose to be in a relationship with him. It was before Jacob and Esau did anything that I chose a people for a purpose that I would walk with them and have mercy upon their lives. It's those people right here that God is now referring to them. And he's saying, I just want you to know, I don't regard favorably the offering that comes from your hands. 
Now, theologically, you ought to be scratching your head right now. You ought to be. Wait, wait, wait. Well, God chose in mercy to have a relationship with Jacob outside of anything that he did. And then he turns around and says, on the basis of your unworthy offerings to me, I, I, don't, I don't regard them with favor. All right, now here's my, here's my dilemma to you. I think I'll put this question in your outline. Under the doctrine of salvation by grace, is there any place for considering an effect on our lives that is connected with our obedience to God? We're saved by grace. The salvation that we enjoy of relating to God, just like Jacob, just like Abraham, the moon worshiper, he comes into covenant with God out of the mercy and grace of God, as does Isaac, as does Jacob, as does all the descendants, as does every person of faith, as do you and I. We come by the grace of God. To God, we receive salvation by grace. So does that mean there is nothing to be said about our obedience and the effect that it has upon whether or not God regards favorably our lives and responds to that? This this shouldn't be an easy theological question for you. But I think if we're honest, we have to make room for our disobedience is a factor in how God is relating to us. I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about as the people of God. Right? One of my favorite theologians who's a favorite because of his clarity would be a guy named Wayne Grudem. He wrote an article honoring John Piper and his ministry. In this article, he says this about this issue. He says, if we boldly teach that justified Christians can and should seek to please God, right? You do things that please God by their obedience, We will not obscure justification by faith alone. We won't do it. Zeal to protect one great biblical teaching should never cause us to neglect another great biblical teaching. Right? Justification by faith and obedience to God. Both teachings in the Bible. In fact, if we fear to teach something that is clearly taught in the New Testament, we probably need exactly that doctrine we are so zealous to protect. In this case, such an unbalanced emphasis can lead us to a wrongful neglect of the importance of obedience to God in the Christian life and a neglect of the great truth that we actually can live lives that are pleasing to God each day. It can, listen, rob us of a great motive for obedience and also rob us of the great joy of knowing that we at this very moment actually are pleasing God. Now, I find it interesting here, right? That's a great thought. You can be robbed of the joy of actually knowing you are pleasing God. Now, how interesting, as we gaze at these folks in Malachi who are characterized by this, tears, weeping, and groaning, because God doesn't seem favorably disposed towards you. That's what Malachi is saying. You guys are postured in tears, in weeping, and groaning because you can't understand why it feels like God's not okay right now. I don't don't get that. God feels like he's not okay with what's going on, and they can't seem to get God to be okay, sorry, with what's happening in their lives. Well, they're, they're disobeying God. They're living a life in disobedience. Stop expecting God's going to be okay with that. That's not going to happen. Adjust your life. Become obedient to God. 
Listen, one of the great puzzlements of these folks in Malachi is how clueless they were about the effect their lives were having on God. They were just out of touch. It didn't seem to matter with them. It didn't seem to affect them. Right? Can you imagine? We become, as a people, disobedient to the, the study of God's word and to prayer. Right? The Bible calls on us to study God's word, to have our minds renewed, to pray and be in communion with God as each individual is called to do. And so we disobey God and don't do that, and then we turn around in our moaning about our lives and complain that God's not making us happy. Right? Is that anybody here? We decide to abandon fellowship and the mission of the church. I mean, sure, yeah, we stick our head in. We're involved there once in a while, kind of connect with a few things the church is doing. But for the most part, we're not eagerly involved in fellowship. We're not walking with the burdens of other people's lives. We're not involved with one another. And we're not taking part of the mission of the church to extend the gospel into all the earth through local means, extra local means. That's not happening in our lives. But then we want to take God to task over whether or not we feel fulfilled, whether whether or not I'm happy. Are you surprised? You're disobeying God. The Great Commission is exactly that. It's a great commission. It's not like the great suggestion, the greatest suggestion of all times. Hey, listen, if you guys get bored with living your own adventurous lives, how about maybe, I don't know, taking the gospel to the end of the earth? I mean, if you don't have anything else to do, you understand. It's the Great Commission. It's like, I've saved you and I left you here. Go and do this. Go. It's a command. Go and do this. So if I'm not living in that command, do I just, I just want God to be all right with that? I want God to make my, feel, my life feel like everything's good. Everything's well-oiled and it all makes sense. And when we scratch our heads and we wonder, what's God's problem? Right? We disobey God in how we handle our finances. We've created some paper-thin theology that somehow I have the right, the understanding that in the New Testament, God doesn't require any kind of financial activity from me. God's just so much bigger than that in the New Testament, you see. Listen, listen. God wasn't small in the Old Testament. God wasn't having a financial crisis in the Old Testament to where he needed to beg for money from his people. Hey, I'm sorry to hit you guys up over some of this, but you don't understand. Times are really bad in heaven. Now, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is on the other side of the cross. We know the economy is going to kick off like a stimulus plan. It's going to kick off, and I won't need your money anymore. Is that, what, is that how your theology for giving works? You're a human being. You're breathing God's air that he provided for you. In the same way that he calls on you to renew your mind and pray and fellowship with him, he calls on you to give of his provision into your life back to him. So we disobey God, and then our life is unfulfilled in some career pursuit, or we're having struggles in this category, and we sort of take God to court. Like we're moaning and grieving over stuff in our life. Okay, well, don't be surprised that you're moaning and grieving. Don't develop a theology that says it doesn't matter how you live. You're a Christian. It doesn't matter how you live because you're saved by grace. You are saved by grace, and it matters how you live. That's the truth. Here's an interesting thought from Richard Phillips. He says, we praise God that we are not required to earn what Christ has done for us, for we never could do so. We receive his death by simple faith alone. 
Jesus never demands that we earn what he did for us. But the Bible does tell us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. The Lord presented to us in Malachi. The Lord who is awesome and terrible. The Lord who is amazing and inspires fear. The Lord who, when he pulls back the veil on the throne room, causes everybody to kind of wet their pants and freak out. That God. We're to live in a manner worthy of that God. Not because the more worthy we get, the more secure our salvation is. No. Don't go there. This passage isn't going there. But don't be surprised that when we live in disobedience, we encounter unfavorable feelings in our lives. It's God in his mercy calling us to repent and change. All right, let's diagnose our issue here. Let's see if we can find the sciatic epicenter of our lives. These people, you look at their lives... And somewhere in their extremities, pain was observable. A numb foot, a shooting pain in the knee, weird tingly feelings. Right? And for this context, it was in the category of relationships, right? where Malachi starts. Why then are we faithless to one another? There's some pains in the one another category of life. One another's in this particular context of marriage. There's some pains in the marriage relationships with people. That's interesting to, to consider the sciatic symptoms. And maybe, maybe this is a descriptive of where they were, where we might be. There can be marriages that are here this morning and... and you just the symptoms that you're experiencing are numbness. You just you've just lost feelings for each other. You're living together. It's nothing special. It's not exactly disastrous either. It's just numb. The extremities feel numb. Or maybe maybe you're having a crisis. Maybe it's more like a sharp shooting pain, right? I mean, I, I didn't have I haven't had sciatic problems that I know of, but I've I've watched Peter and Jeff walk through sciatic issues and a variety of symptoms. Sometimes it's just this dull Peter would drag his foot because he kind of couldn't feel it. He couldn't feel his foot. Other points, it'd be this sharp, you know, sharp pain. All right, well, maybe that's your relationship. There's a sharp crisis, brokenness in your relationship that you're experiencing. Or, or, or maybe it's just getting weird. Maybe you don't know what to call it. It's like pins and needles. It's tingly kind of weird. Just the symptoms, I don't even know what to say what's going on in my marriage. Or, or maybe it's not your marriage. Maybe it's parents with your children. Maybe it's children with your parents. Maybe it's in the body of Christ. There are people right here in this room right now. There are people that you've walked with. Uh, there are people in the church you used to go to. Shooting pains. Or just dull, I don't want to get too close to anybody. Because I got close before and I got hurt and it wasn't done right. And I, I just want to attend church and go home, dude. Don't, don't, you don't understand where I've come from. Okay. Or maybe that's, maybe that's a condition. What's, what's sitting on the nerve, though? That's the question. 
What is it that's behind all these things? Well, when I read Malachi, I find one thing dominates this entire book. It's God fighting for his greatness in the face of his people and God fighting for his purpose in their lives. That's what God fights for in this book. That's why I love this book. It's God making his case that before my people, the only way this is going to work in your life is if I'm a great God, that you are affected by my greatness and you are affected by my purpose in your life. They've abandoned both. They no longer see God as great. You can see that in their offerings. You can see that their, their great image of God has become common. It's become lowered. It's become lessened. And next thing you know, listen, your relationships will not survive that. The clock is running. Once God becomes small in our view, the clock is running on what that will do to your relationships over a strict course of time. The issue, what's the, what's the sciatic nerve here? It's whether or not you as the people of God see God as great. Really see him as great. A.W. Tozer says the message of this book, he's not referring to Malachi, but you're going to think he is. The message of this book does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Didn't that sound like the people in Malachi? Well, what are you talking about, God? Well, what have we done? The low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. A low view of God. Listen, all these symptoms these guys in Malachi are having, it traces back to one thing. You have a low, very common view of God. And your life now has become unaffected by him. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. Let me just travel into uh, some lesser categories just for a second. I've got to be politically incorrect for a moment. Because this, this, is a, this, is a, this is a passage talking and defining for us how God feels about something like marriage. This is God defining why something is called treacherous because it brings into us the understanding of of human dignity that doesn't get defined by humanity, it gets defined by God. This, This is why it is wrong, listen to me, it's wrong to start your discussion about the rightness and wrongness of abortion from society's standpoint. It's the wrong starting point. It's the wrong place to start the discussion. Because when you pull God out of the equation of human beings, you have vacuumed out humanity and dignity that belongs to that person because God gave it to them. Because man is made in the image of 
God. So when you decide you're going to touch another human being a certain way, if you pull God out of the equation, you can't understand why that's right or wrong. Does that make sense? It cannot be just a matter of it's right or wrong because my circumstances inform me that this is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. It cannot be that. It is that this is an individual made in the image of God. You must figure out what to do with that individual who has human dignity because God has placed his image on this person. This is why you cannot start a discussion about marriage with society. Society has moved. All of a sudden, there's a lot of things happening in marriages that would not have been comfortable for the society to discuss 20 and 40 years ago. But, but it's almost as though society has moved, and now the message is, well, listen, since society has moved, right, now m- more than a majority, more than half, agree that same-sex marriages should be allowed. And 10 years ago, that was way down, 20-something percent felt that way. I'm not sure whether those stats are even accurate. They're quoting them. But is that even where you start with the discussion? A bunch of people used to feel this way, and now a bunch of people feel this way. This used to be wrong when a bunch of people felt this way, but now it's right because a bunch of people feel this way. Do, do, you, do you follow in this? This is a godless way of looking at things because God created marriage. And God uniquely, and God's fighting for marriage here, isn't he? In Malachi, God's fighting for marriage. Why? Why does marriage matter? Why do these distinctives of a man and a woman coming in marriage matter? Well, you know, Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, do you get what was just said? The image of God. In order for you to see in the human form the image of God, you need male and female. You don't just need male and you don't just need female, right? So don't be a chauvinist here. Don't just love, I'm a woman, I love women, men are weird. And don't be a man, it's like, oh, women. Uh. Listen, if you want to see the image of the glory of God, you're going to need male and female to see it. And so then God takes the woman and gives the woman to the man, and the two become one. Male and female become one as an expression of the image of God. So when you turn around and you say it's okay for a man and a man to come together in marriage or a woman and a woman to come together in marriage, the problem here is that you are stripping the image of God from marriage. You're destroying the image of God. Listen, I know if I make my argument from society right now, I sound unsympathetic, uncaring. Listen, I I care about people. I'm in the pulpit right now. I know if I was talking with you in my office, I, I wouldn't be yelling at you, okay? But, but listen, we're, we're the people of God. People of God. Keith, what's your view on this subject? Well, let me first see what God's view is on it, and then I'll tell you what my view is on it. That's what it means to be the people of God. I don't get to call myself by God's name and then say, well, you know, me and the big man aren't exactly on uh, identical terms on this one. You know, he's got these views. And I got these views. Are you really a child of God? 
Are you really here to image God? Do you really exist for the purpose of God, to proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into his light? Are you really here with a purpose being fulfilled in your life as a human being to make known God? Well, read Malachi. Uh, Read that that God calls, this is God's word, Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It's that same word. How does God feel about that? It's it's offensive to him. It's not his non-best. It's not him kind of saying, I prefer A over B. It's an abomination to God. Do, are you letting God just be God? And this is, this is how God has described how he feels about these issues. When God becomes less than God, all of a sudden all this becomes negotiable. Right? It is the lowering of God that causes all these one another issues to take place. Now listen, as we, we get ready for communion, guys, go ahead and, and get ready to serve communion. Listen, I know you read the book of Malachi. This, this is not a light read, is it? Listen, now, I'm just kind of skipping through Malachi like it's, you know, one of the Psalms about something fun. Uh, this is a heavy book. This is a difficult interaction with this word. But can I, can I just say this? This is Malachi's God. This is our God. God really is great in these categories. He really does have strong feelings about things, about how we live, how we treat one another, how we see him. And you know what's interesting here? Because I know, I know right now somebody's trying to say, you know what, Keith, but the problem is, you know, when you present God like that, you know, I don't know, you know, if it was a little more gracious, a little more nicer version of God, then, you know, I just don't know if that kind of presentation inspires people. Well, can I just tell you that the lowered God didn't inspire these people? They had a lower God. They had a nicer God. They had a God that was a little bit easier to deal with. They had a God that you could bring these lame offerings and you could get rid of wives and you could marry one another and you could still do church because they were still doing church. They had a God who was nicer, and they had uninspired, non-glorifying lives. Do you remember Isaiah's encounter with God? Did Isaiah meet a flimsy, kind of do-it-your-way, multiple-choice God? Right, he was floored by God, and then he was launched into affectionate service of that same God. Listen, please don't become a people who decide what aspect of God you're going to tolerate. Malachi, his God is our God. you got to read and you got to respect the fact that this is how God is. If you don't, I guarantee you, you think you understand grace. You think you do. You don't. You can't understand. You, You haven't seen white until you've seen black. You see the strength of who God is, the greatness of who God is. You will see grace in an amazing way, and you will be blown away by it. Until that day, you will have a very small, cheap view of grace in your life. All right, as these guys go ahead and and take their places. Okay, this is their issue, guys, this morning. And I want to do communion this morning because of what I see in this passage. A people who had lost their vision of the greatness of God begin to have problems with one another. They were faithless toward one another. Their relationships with each other were broken commitments, 
unwillingness to be in relationship when it was difficult, setting people aside when it was convenient, divorce, etc. It was a relational breakdown in their midst because they had displaced God. Now remember, God turns to their worship pattern and then he says, oh, oh, that someone would just shut the door on this meaningless practice where you come and bring offerings that mean nothing to you and you expect them to mean something to me. I wonder sometimes when churches celebrate communion and there is hostility, there's unforgiveness, there's resistance to others, there's marital conflict that's not even attempting to be resolved and hostility towards each other in marriages. There's family breakdown where people not only just bumped into conflicts that happen and challenges that happen, there's unwillingness to deal with things. And then it's the morning to celebrate communion. I wonder, now you go there with me, right? You're reading the same book I'm reading. I wonder whether God sometimes would look on communion and he just says, oh, that someone would just shut the door. You don't, you don't mean this, right? Malachi is puzzled. He says, don't we all have one father, one God? What's with this faithlessness to one another? Aren't we all brought together by his mercy to be his people? Hasn't he treated us in amazing grace? And yet you won't extend that to one another. What the heck is going on? That's Malachi's shock. And then we have communion, and we act as though we're going to celebrate the atonement this morning. We're going to celebrate the work of Christ to reconcile hostile sinners to the living God. His forgiveness toward us his hand of mercy upon our lives this day and for the rest of our lives and into eternity. We're going to celebrate that this morning. But are you at odds with somebody right now? You have forgiveness in your heart right now? I'm going to invite you like never before. I think it's a, it's a blight on the greatness of God for that to be ignored and for us to participate in this meal. I think God would rather just tell you individually, oh, that you would just shut the door and don't take Not that I don't want you to take communion, not that I don't want you to celebrate the atonement, but I don't want you to celebrate it in a moment. I want you to celebrate it with your life. I want you to celebrate it by being restored to that person. I want you to work hard at being reconciled to that person because of what I did. I did the ultimate work to reconcile you to myself. Will you be reconciled to those that are offended with you? If you will not, then God says, this is, this is empty. I think he'd rather just close the doors on it. So let's pray and ask God to help us have hearts prepared to receive this morning. Lord, Lord, our relating to each other, these relationship extremities are all wrapped up in how we see you, how we see your greatness, how we see the amazing grace of God in our lives, the mercy that has been upon our lives as descendants of Jacob, people of faith. Lord, we have received from you what we do not deserve, and you have promised to continue to give us what we do not deserve. Lord, this morning as we celebrate that you have done that for us in the cross, Lord, let our hearts please you. Let our obedience please you. That if you've been calling us to be reconciled to someone and we have been resisting you, then, then we have no basis right now to celebrate this meal, for we are not celebrating it. 
God, would you bring conviction, disturbing conviction. Oh, Lord, that, that in our hearts we would shut the door on practices where we just go through the motions, but our, we really don't mean it. God, as we this morning partake of communion, celebrating our union with you, may it be we recognize we also celebrate our union with one another under our Father and God who has brought us together. Go ahead and ask you guys to come and be served. If you would exit out of your, your left and then receive your, actually, I'm sorry, exit out of your right and then go back down the other side. And just come row at a time there. God of all creation, Lord of heaven's light, descended into evil's darkest night, infinitely holy, your inspections know no end, selflessly you died my rightful death, by this we know love. He laid down his life God's very own son Seemed from heaven to die Suspended he hung As he shed his own blood What grace in his pardon By this we God's 
We've celebrated many communion times together as a church, as a people. This is a meal that remembers something so life-changing and significant that this meal was inaugurated for the purpose of calling us to remember. And in remembering, we're going to call forth all the richness of the love of God the mercy of God, the care of God, the forgiveness of God. That's what we're called to remember. Now, what we did leading up to this moment was sort of face the correction of God in the book of Malachi. Now, in the same way that God was addressing marriages in Malachi, uh, it would have been maybe a little bit of a challenge to transition from his words in Malachi to a wedding where there'd be music and dancing. That might have been a little bit of a challenging transition. And this might be, for some, a challenging transition. We've gone from observing the correction of God in the way in which people relate to one another to celebrating communion. That's okay. It doesn't have to be a smooth transition. Because I think one of the things that God is trying to do with us as a people is he's trying to keep us 
from having empty activity in our lives. God doesn't want our fellowship to be empty. He wants it to be rich. He wants it to be an expression of what this purchased, this purchased something for us. He wants it to be a proclamation of the excellencies of God who by this work made something possible for you and I to do to proclaim his glory. And listen, I, I don't always have good days and I'm not always doing my best. I love the fact that my life has found its purpose to proclaim the glory of God. And so, listen, I, I don't enjoy being corrected, but I love being corrected. Does that make sense? I love it because it restores in my heart the thing that matters the most, that so easily gets displaced. So what we hold in our hands, this, this bread, it represents the invisible God putting on visible humanity, knowing that once he dressed himself in this, he would not be recognized, he would not be appreciated. He would not be served as a king that he was worthy to be served of. He would not be glorified. He would be mocked. He would be beaten. His body would be broken. And in doing that, he would purchase for himself a people, a people, a people. All that stuff about Abraham, everything being said to Malachi, do you understand it was all looking for this day? profaning of the covenant with Abraham was a day that God made a covenant with an individual that was only going to be possible when this day became possible. No one was going to be reconciled to God apart from the Son of God putting on human flesh and yielding his life. Let's partake of the bread. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there can be no forgiveness. There's no way for you and I to get right with God just because God feels like he'd like for us to be right with him. Even according to God's righteousness, there had to be the shedding of blood. A life was going to have to be given, a perfect life, the life of the Son of God himself. His blood was going to have to be spilled for there to be forgiveness, not forgiveness for him, but forgiveness for us. Now this blood has come and touched our lives and has washed away our sins. And now the Bible has this effect upon us. He who has been forgiven much loves much. That's why it's a, it's a head scratcher for God to look at his people and say, how do you do this? When you have one father, you all, you have one father, you sitting there, you have one father, you have one God, you have been restored to him, you who have a conflict with one another, you who are not sure you want to forgive each other, whether you want to stay married or not, God is staying married to you every day. How can you not love each other that way? It's a head scratcher because this blood makes that possible. This blood had never been shed, then you and I don't have a hope of pulling this off. But because the blood has been shed, you and I have been restored to God, and now the life of God dwells in us. The same life that loves us the way we're loved now dwells in us to love one another that way. 
The only way this becomes impossible then is if we will not. I will not obey God. That's the only way it becomes impossible. Well, if you're holding a cup in your hand and, and, and with your mouth you're saying, I will not, don't, don't drink the cup. But if you're a child of God, something inside of you right now is screaming out, I will. And I want to. It's hard. I'm discouraged. I lack faith. But I want to do this for the glory of God. Because if you're a child of God, that voice is inside of you. And it wants to drink this cup in gratitude and it wants to live its life in light of that. Let's take the cup. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for revealing yourself to Malachi, through Malachi, to these people and to us. And I thank you for rescuing us from the threat of empty religion. We just go through motions feel okay about ourselves, but our hearts are far from you. God, thank you that you love us and you will not let us stay there. Lord, thank you for what the cry of our heart is, a day of a new normal. When we come together to celebrate this meal, it's normal for us to be in right relationship with each other as a reflection of our right relationship with you. So Lord, help us. In days ahead, help as we continue to read and study in this great book. Help us to be restored to a great God and his great purpose for his people. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Bless you guys. Blessed is the one whose sins I overcome, whom God has sheltered deep within his grace. Trust in God the Son, His steadfast love, the sinner's hiding place.
Savior Jesus 